0: Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Colleen Tinker. And I'm Nikki Stevenson. And Nikki, I want to know something. We are looking today at Revelation 1, 4 through 8. We've been through the introduction. We've been through um, John's introduction of this letter, which he's going to send to the churches. And today he is moving into Introducing the Trinity, who is giving this letter, and introducing who Jesus actually is, the Alpha and the Omega. And as he does this, he makes a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. And I want to know (laughs) if you had any idea how often
1: John refers to Daniel. In this section? Yes. I had no idea. You know, I wasn't familiar with Daniel until we did this podcast, this last podcast series, it was a definite approach avoidance situation there for me. Reading through it, preparing for this episode was so much fun. It was like a firestorm of recall from our series and Daniel, these words that I would have flown right past because yeah, I understand. This was fun. This is a lot of Daniel.
0: It, It really is. And again, I'm reminded of what it was Elizabeth Inrig said years ago that has helped me see Revelation from a proper perspective. It's the idea that Revelation is the completion of Old Testament prophecy. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to me to see that actually being true in its allusions to the Old Testament. You know, as an Adventist, I thought those kinds of things were interesting. They were literary techniques. Techniques to make writing interesting and erudite. And you know, the more literature you know and the more uh, Shakespeare you know, the more you understand the idioms of English. It's just a fascinating thing to do with your language. But now I'm looking at this and thinking, oh no, these weren't just little techniques to make the writing interesting. These are things that speak truth by connecting John's prophecy to things that the Old Testament prophets also said and showing There's a fulfillment that's coming. This is not just um, somebody's imagination or a dream.
1: Right. And, you know, one of the things that I thought of as I was reading this is these words are very meaningful for Gentile Christians. They are impacting whether you know Daniel or not. So true. But then I thought about what the angel said to Daniel in that last chapter when he said that in those days, those last days at the end knowledge will increase and people will run to and fro. And I thought about Israel, searching these things out, searching scripture to understand what's going on around them and finding these letters written to the church from Christ to the church using language that will help them understand what's happening. Isn't that amazing? It wasn't random. It
0: wasn't accidental. It's not like, oh, what a coincidence or how well read John was. No, this is God giving John these connections so he will understand and the church will understand. And then back to what we talked about at the beginning of this book, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. So the fact that we're reading this, talking about it, and praying that the Lord will show us how to keep and heed these words, this is a blessing. So stick with us because you're listening to this. This is a promised blessing.
1: That being said, would you like to read these words of verses 4 through 8 of Revelation 1? John to the seven churches that are in Asia grace to you in peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Oh my. <laughs> we serve a triune God, Nikki. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: John opens this section by addressing the recipients of this letter. He addresses it to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, Nikki, what were those seven churches? Were they the only seven churches around
1: in that day? And what was Asia? Do you have any insight into that? There were many churches in that area, but these were seven big churches. Right.
0: And we know of some others that are not named here. We know about Colossae. We've done the Epistle to the Colossians. There was Miletus, Hierapolis, Troas. There were many others. The number seven, this is one of those uses of the number seven in the book of Revelation. Seven is a really big number in Revelation. It doesn't always mean, like in this case, there's only seven of these things. But seven Is a number that symbolizes completeness. Some call it the number of God, where the number six or six, six, six is the number of man. I, I think that's kind of an interesting thing just in terms of history and tradition. But the messages to these churches represented problems and conditions and strengths that are found in all of the churches through all the history of the church. So these are representative churches, but they were real churches. And Asia isn't the Asia we know today. It was a Roman colony, which is in the area that we now know as Western Turkey. And these churches were all within about 50 miles of each other, and they formed a kind of circle. If you started with Ephesus and ended with Laodicea, there was kind of a route that they followed, and they were all about 50 miles apart. And they were intended all to receive and hear this letter. And all the churches in the area
1: we're apparently intended to get it as well as are we. So then he goes on with his greeting and he says, grace to you and peace from, this is cool. This is about to highlight our triune God. This blessing is coming to us from him who is and who was and who is to come. And many people believe this is God, the father. Mm-hmm. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne there's a little more to unpack behind that one. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is our triune God blessing us through this message. It's so amazing to hear that.
0: And grace, as we know, is a word that Paul used often in his epistles. Paul uses the word grace over 100 times in his writings. But in this book of Revelation written by John, that particular word is only used twice. It's used here and it's used in the last chapter of the book in Revelation 22 1, at the beginning and the ending of the book of Revelation, which is kind of an interesting fact. So, grace and peace, Paul used that like in Galatians 1 3, where he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, in Ephesians 1-2, where he says the same thing, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Nikki, you were talking to me before we started recording about the idea that this word grace and its accompanying word peace had to do with the gospel.
1: Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, this blessing can only come to us through the gospel. The gospel is God's grace to us, and because of that grace, we have peace with God, there was a, another epistle that we walked through on this podcast where they the, there were some commentators we had looked at who were talking about what was behind that grace and that peace, and they really fleshed out, this is the result of the work of our triune God on our behalf. Because of what he did, we have peace with God, and that's a grace from him. So to see this directly spoken in this revelation to us from our triune God, it's really, it's precious. It is precious. And I think it's interesting that in the Gospel of
0: John, remember, same author, in John 14, 27, John quotes Jesus coming to his disciples and saying, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And here is the Lord Jesus saying this directly to his apostles, of whom one was John. John heard him say that. So, here he's hearing Jesus deliver grace and peace to the churches again after his ascension. It is a core result of believing in his finished atonement. And the idea that the word's peace be with you, um, did not originate in the New Testament, but they were a traditional Hebrew greeting. And I thought it was really an interesting tie-in that we read these words in Daniel 10, where Daniel, in that great vision in Daniel 10, is told by his heavenly messenger, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid, peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. And then Daniel says, Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So it's interesting to see that in Daniel, Daniel gets this heavenly messenger delivering God's peace to him. And John here is again delivering the peace of God, the peace accomplished for us
1: through Jesus to the church. It's a consistent theme. So then that first title that we see, from him who is and who was and who is to come. I was listening to Gary Inrig in his sermon that he did on this passage for Word Search Loma Linda back in 2014, and he said that behind this word, it's built into the word, the verb to be. He said, this is Yahweh. This is I am that I am. The way God identified himself to
0: Moses at the burning bush. And interestingly, when God came to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, that was the first time God had revealed his name, his personal name, Yahweh. He gave it to Moses, and it was the way Moses and all Israel was to know him. You know, and that's to me a really interesting fact because I had never learned in Adventism that God wants to be known that he revealed himself personally to Moses and wanted Israel to know him by name. And that in the New Testament, we have an even more personal revelation of him as father, and he wants us to call him that. (laughs) But that is such an interesting connection that Gary makes with, I
1: am that I am. It's the to be verb, Mm -hmm. is, was, and is to come. And so that's what he reveals to Moses. And then here now, in the church, he's revealed himself to us as a trinity. Yes. And he puts all of that together. He includes the name he gave to Israel and the names he's given to the church. Isn't
0: that fascinating? And notice the eternality of God is known in this name. Mm-hmm. To Moses, it was that present tense, I am that I am. It's, I exist, is what he's saying. And there's never been a time he didn't exist. And here's John pointing that out by giving us those three tenses, who was, past tense, who is, present tense,
1: and who is to come. There's no time. God has not been. And one of the other things I love about this, especially with our Adventist background, he's telling us here that he is to come. Yes. But he's leading With grace and peace between us. His coming is not scary for his people. Wow, that is amazing, Nikki. That's a great
0: insight. Were you afraid of Jesus' second coming as an Adventist? I was. I was too. Mm -hmm. I dreaded it. It was both frightening and annoying to me because whenever he would come, it would interrupt my life. And if I hadn't accomplished everything that I felt I wanted to as a human being, (laughs) it was going to be annoying. I remember my eighth grade teacher saying, I believe that none of you will graduate from academy. Jesus will come before then. And I was very upset. I mean, I knew it was wrong to be upset. I felt I
1: should be happy, but I didn't feel happy. (laughs) I think I felt a whole lot of different things all at once, which isn't abnormal for me as an Adventist, (laughs) but... um. I wanted him to come because I wanted release from suffering, but I was afraid of him coming because I didn't know that I'd be saved. Right. I didn't know that I'd make it. And I knew that there was going to be this horrible, horrible time of persecution before he got here. So there were a lot of emotions about it, but it wasn't until I became a Christian and I read John's writings... I mean, I think of his letters and and where he talked about that love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. And that was in the context of the return of Christ. Yes. You know, I used to think, oh, I've only been made perfect if I only ever feel love, but that's not what that's saying. No. It's saying that we don't fear the return of Christ because we've been perfected in him. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And then he goes on to write this revelation. (laughs) It's pretty incredible. So I'm always happy to see that anytime God is reassuring us and telling us there is peace between us, I'm coming and there is peace between us.
0: (laughs) No fear here. So he introduces the first person of the Trinity as the first person giving the grace and peace to the church. And then he says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Well, what does he mean by the
1: seven spirits? Are there seven Holy spirits before the throne of God, or what is he talking about here? There's been a lot of speculation about what that is because it's an unusual way for us to hear God talk about the spirit of God. Right. And so I think a lot of people come down on this being a representation of the Holy Spirit, going back again to seven being a number of perfection and completion. One of the things that Gary Inrig said was. He thinks it could be related to the fact that there are seven churches, and each of the churches has the fullness of the Spirit, and we're going to go on and see seven lampstands and seven mm-hmm. stars. And so it's very fitting that it it could be that. There are some people who say that maybe it's seven angels. Um, But that this blessing would come from God the Father, seven angels, and the Lord Jesus, and there's no mention of the Holy Spirit is a little bit out of pattern for Scripture.
0: I also noticed that Gary Inrig connected this with Zechariah 4. And remember he had said that there are three basic apocalyptic books in the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. and Revelation is an apocalyptic book in the sense of the style being these large-scale visual pictures of what is to come. Zechariah was one of those three Old Testament books, Zechariah, Daniel, and Ezekiel. And in Zechariah 4, Zechariah is asked in a vision what he sees, and he says, Um, in verse 2, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on the top of it, and it's seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. And in a sense, um, John's reference to the seven spirits echoes Zechariah's sevens, describing the lampstands. Now, it's interesting the NASB study notes on that passage in Zechariah 4.2 says this, The bowl represents an abundant supply of oil, symbolizing the fullness of God's power through His Spirit. And the seven and seven represents the abundant light shining from the lamps 7 being the number of fullness or completeness so even in zechariah zechariah's vision of the lampstand with the large bowl of oil and the seven lamps that were burning from that oil is a representation of the holy spirit and here in john there's an allusion to that to that Image from that apocalyptic vision of Zechariahs and says there are the seven spirits which are before the throne,
1: but likely he is referring to the complete fullness of power of the Holy Spirit. So I know we both also listen to Eslos Johnson and he talks about this and he points us to Isaiah chapter eleven and he talks about where the prophet Isaiah is speaking of the Messiah who's to come. And he describes him in this way, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So there are six aspects of the spirit that is on the Messiah, Mm -hmm. but in the Greek translation, there are actually seven. Right,
0: in the Septuagint that was used in the first century by the early church.
1: Yeah, so this is what some people have described as like the sevenfold spirit of
0: God, mm-hmm. which is an interesting connection also, since, as we know, the Old Testament is never directly quoted in Revelation, but it is alluded to many, many times. John refers to the Old Testament. And you know what I find interesting about that, Nikki? Hmm he assumes his readers are going to understand the Old Testament that he's pointing back to. He doesn't explain where he gets his imagery. He knows they know the Old Testament. Prior to the printing press, which was like hundreds of years in the future from where John's writing, prior to that, people had scrolls that were handwritten and not everybody had a scroll by the time, as we learned earlier, the intertestamental period when the Jews started their synagogues, people would go to the synagogue and they could, you know, study the Bible together, but they basically had to memorize their scriptures. They didn't all have them in their homes. John just assumes that his first century Christians who had originally been Jews, would know the Old Testament prophecies and would know what he was referring to. And they would see the connection between what he is explaining that's being revealed
1: to him now and what was promised by God hundreds of years before. One of the things I love about that is that the book of Revelation does not let us off the hook. No, We read the book of Revelation and we go, wait, what does that mean? And it throws us back into all the rest of scripture, which we have been commanded to read and to know. And so we don't get to just like "Eh, willy nilly kind of not pay attention to scripture and then come to Revelation and know what's happening next. It demands that we care about the full counsel of God. That has come to be a really
0: important thing for me. Which, when I first started studying Revelation after coming out of Adventism, I felt annoyed by that. I <laughs> felt annoyed that this book wasn't more clear about the future mm-hmm. because I thought, based on my whole Adventist worldview, that it really should be clear. You know, because I was told it was clear, even though it never seemed clear to me.
1: Oh, it always felt tricky to me. Like yeah. you just had to be smart enough to figure it out or have the right profit. Yes, exactly.
0: And clearly I did. And then I found out I didn't. So I was totally confused about Revelation. But when I started realizing how much it was dependent on the Old Testament, I thought, well, wait a minute, this isn't new. And now I look at it and say, well, wait a minute. No, (laughs) this is not new. We have to know. And you know, this reminds me of another thing. We talked about this a bit a couple weeks ago when we talked about the methods of interpreting Revelation, but it's something that Gary pointed out when he taught this. He said, certain methods of looking at Revelation, like completely allegorizing it and seeing it as uh, representational and not necessarily as futuristic, describing the future, requires, if you look at Revelation that way, it requires that you reinterpret the Old Testament Mm -hmm. And that has helped me understand this whole process so much better, and I don't feel annoyed that he's referring to the Old Testament anymore. (laughs) I'm seeing that he is going back to prophecies which Israel knew, the Jews knew, the early Christians knew, God made promises to Israel that have not all come to pass, and we still have to read those prophecies the way God meant them in the first place and not reinterpret them as being somehow all transmogrified into the church, they really still mean what they mean. And John is showing us how they will come to pass. And that's just amazing to me. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, he's telling us what's to come. He's giving us prophetic prophecy. And in a way, he's saying, look, I've already told you. Long before you walked the earth, (laughs) my prophets already told you. I'm going to tell you more now. It's one of these things that are really frustrating to explain to unbelievers, but it's another way that scripture self-authenticates itself. Yeah, it is. That's a
0: really good point. So then after
1: saying that grace and peace
0: are from the Almighty, God the Father, the seven spirits of God, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit, now we have the Lord Jesus and from Jesus Christ. And here, John walks us through who Jesus Christ is. Now, in
1: verse 5, Nikki, what does he say about him? He is what? Well, first, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, those are the
0: first three things he says about Jesus. He will also say, as we go on, and we'll look at them as we go, he'll say four more things, either that identify him or that tell us what he has done. But let's start with that faithful witness.
1: What does it mean when he says Jesus is the faithful witness? Of what? Of the Father. You know, it takes me back to what we were talking about last week. When we shared how John often talks about the witness, the testimony of Christ, Jesus saying, I can only do what the Father has told me to do. He came to bear witness about the Father. Isn't that something? And he was faithful. He only did what the Father told him to, what the Father showed him. Yes.
0: And an interesting thing that I noticed in um, J. Vernon McGee's commentary, and it was a fascinating reference to me, one that I didn't really even understand until just a few years ago, and that was that in Deuteronomy, Moses told Israel that a prophet like him was going to come. Mm -hmm. And when that prophet came, they were to listen to him. And that prophet Was Jesus. The New Testament identifies Jesus as that prophet who was to come. And that prophet was going to speak truth. Jesus identified himself as the way, the truth, and the life. And John is picking up on all of that, all those illusions, that prophecy of Moses, the fact that Jesus himself authenticated himself as that prophet who was to come, the faithful witness, the one who only did what the Father told him. This is not just a new title for Jesus. This is who he is as foretold from the time of Moses all through the Old Testament, including the words of Jesus himself.
1: You know, it's easy for us to read Jesus Christ and just see his name, but that's Jesus the Messiah. Yeah. And so he's making very clear here that the God-man, the Jesus of Nazareth who walked this earth. Who came and who died and was buried and raised again and ascended? He now sits at the right hand of the Father and he is the king. He is the one who owns the deed to the earth. (laughs) Yes. And he is with the Father, with the seven spirits of God before the throne. And he's writing to
0: us. And that also takes us to the second thing John says about him, which is he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one on the basis of his sufficient sacrifice, which broke the curse of death. He's the first one to rise from death in a glorified body. And I just have to say it it can't be Moses. Moses was not resurrected from the dead so he could appear on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Nothing says Moses was resurrected. That is an Adventist teaching. Jesus has to be the first fruits. We can't stick a resurrection of Moses in there before Jesus rises from the dead. He is the first fruits. And then, as you were saying, he's the ruler of all, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And you know, it's also interesting that this is not only about his position now at the right hand of the Father, this is also his position, which he will hold in the millennial kingdom he will be the king of all the earth. As Psalm 2 prophesies, it's, it's a short psalm. It's an amazing thing. But for example, in verses four through six, this is what the psalmist says. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And he says later in the psalm, verses 8 and 9, and this is God speaking to his holy king that he's establishing, ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And as my friend Amy sometimes says, he has not ruled over the nations with a rod of iron yet, (laughs) but it is coming. Mm -hmm. And that's hinted at here in this verse. Talk to us about what John tells us in verse five about in him who loves
1: us and released us from our sins by his blood. So I really love tenses since leaving Adventism. That's Mm -hmm. a big one for us. That's where we see our security, isn't it? So here we see to him who loves us, that's present tense, that's ongoing, and released us, that's past tense, it's done. He released us from our sins by his blood. So here we see the pure gospel God loves us now. We are made right through the work of Christ, we're justified. We've been released from our sins, and the method of our salvation is the blood of Christ, the finished work of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. So in all of these titles, in this simple sentence, we are reassured of our salvation and of the ongoing love that proceeds from the Father to those who are his. Isn't that amazing? It's so emotional to me. And I love also the
0: fact that the Greek word underlying the verb loves is, is a tense that began in the past and continues indefinitely into the future. But the word for released or loosed us from our sins is just past tense. It happened in a moment of time. Nikki, this puts to death anything about an investigative judgment. Yeah, it does. Our sins were forgiven at a moment in time. That is applied to us the minute we trust him. We are not waiting for Jesus to go through the record of our sins and apply his blood as we manage to confess and as we manage to perfect ourselves. No, it happened once in the past. And you know, I had an email recently where somebody said, well, how could God possibly have forgiven the sins of the future? How can you say he's forgiven your sins past, present, and future? And I want to say this, Jesus died once. He's not reapplying his blood to everybody's sins as they are born. We were all in the future when Jesus died. Mm -hmm. His blood covers our sins, and every one of them from the cross onward was in the future Mm -hmm. to him. But for us, It's an eternal once for all sacrifice that he did in a moment of time.
1: And he goes on and says, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. I love the fact that it says made us. This is the creative and effectual work of Christ. Again, this isn't us being worthy or trying or, you know, good luck, guys. (laughs) This is that he made us, past tense, to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. The kingdom made me think of what Peter writes in his letter, First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, but you, speaking to the church, mm-hmm. you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim, I love the so that's, <laughs> I know. so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The so that in this is about glorifying God and proclaiming what he's done. It's not so that you can vindicate God. Exactly. Oh, my
0: goodness. I'm so offended. The more I study and what I see written here, the idea that we were taught, Nikki, that we vindicate God John is describing a sovereign, triune God who needs no vindication. We are his creatures. He brings us into
1: his life, into his story. We don't vindicate him. Mm -mm. No, the work's done. It's time to get over that. (laughs) Let it go. (laughs) He's done it. Now we proceed from there and we glorify him for what he's done for us. The other thing this kingdom reminds me of is Daniel. Yes. Daniel, in chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar about his dream that he had. And at the end of this vision, he says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. Now, this clearly has in view, contextually, the millennial kingdom, yes. because it's the kingdom that wipes out all the kingdoms of the earth. Yes, But when Jesus came, he also said the kingdom of God is at hand. And he began to build his church, mm-hmm. which he continues to build, and we are a part of that kingdom that is to come. Isn't that amazing? It reminds me again
0: of how Gary explained it in his introduction to Revelation, that that vision— of the metals the statue with the head of gold the chest of silver and the the thighs of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay that image in the vision is shattered by that stone which grows into a kingdom that fills the earth and as gary said that's the daniel vision that God gave to the pagan king. Mm -hmm. Revelation is the explanation of how that stone shatters the
1: Gentile kingdoms (laughs) and fills the earth. That's what John is starting to explain here. And then he ends this by saying, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I love that he follows this kingdom that God has made us to be with God's enduring dominion and his glory. It also takes us back to Daniel. Yeah. It makes me think of Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, after Nebuchadnezzar comes to see this God that Daniel worships. And he proclaims, he says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And Darius says a similar thing when he comes to see the God of Daniel rescued him from the lions, the mouths of the lions, and he rejoices. And he actually made a decree that everyone in his kingdom would fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. And he says, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. And then in Daniel 7, where Daniel is given the vision with the beasts, which really explains Daniel 2 from a heavenly perspective. Daniel is again getting an interpretation and it says, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. That's 7, 17 and 18. So, we have all of this language of God having this kingdom that's going to endure, that is going to dominate It's like what we talked about in our rap for Daniel, Mm -hmm. where I shared with you, I feel like a bridge just sprouted out of the book of Daniel, Uh stretched across the New Testament and landed in Revelation. Absolutely, I love that metaphor. It's so
0: accurate. And, you know, related to this dominion, Paul, who wrote prior, not long prior, but a few decades before Daniel wrote this book, Paul says this in Ephesians 1 about Jesus and the church. He says in 18 to 22 in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. John is describing here in a nutshell. This is the God, the triune God, who in Christ has established an eternal dominion, an eternal kingdom, and Jesus is going to actually physically reign on earth in his millennial kingdom, but his ultimate kingdom is eternal.
1: Mm -hmm. It will never pass away. It's amazing that this introduction (laughs) is pulling together so much scripture, so much truth from both testaments, yes. so that whether you are Israel Mm -hmm. seeking to know who your Messiah is or the church, you're overwhelmed with these truths about God and there's no way to miss him. Nikki, that is such a great point. The book of Daniel is there
0: for any Jew to read in the original language Hebrew. And Ephesians is here for anybody who is a believer already to read. And we can see that God's plan has always been in place. He told these things to Israel. He's revealing these things to the church. And together, Israel and the
1: church will comprise God's eternal kingdom. And this introduction says, he came... And now he moves and says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And that again takes us
0: back to Daniel, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. In Daniel 7, again, like you were pointing out earlier, this is the vision in Daniel 7 of the four beasts that describe those nations, those Gentile empires that are pictured in that statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. But from a heavenly perspective, we see their cruel, ravening, compulsive natures. Mm -hmm. And in that vision, God reveals to Daniel that God himself is going to be the one who destroys those empires. It ultimately will not be the work of a man who destroys those empires. It will be God. And in Daniel 7, 12 and 13, Daniel sees a vision of a judgment. In the second part of that judgment scene, Daniel sees this, and this is a quote from verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The thing that really strikes me about this has another connection to Adventism. See, here Daniel says one like a son of man was coming as he's watching The clouds of heaven, and on the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man is coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. Well, who's that talking about, the son of man coming in clouds? That's Jesus. Yes, we know that. We actually learned that as Adventists. But here's the thing that's so interesting to me about this. This is the only place in the Old Testament where that phrase, the son of man, is used. Jesus, however, used that particular phrase to describe himself, to identify himself more than any other single phrase in the New Testament. Now, I learned as an Adventist that Jesus claimed that title for himself because it identified him with us. And in fact, I might not have even paused on this and thought too much about it if it hadn't been that I'd just been writing commentary for the Sabbath school lesson. This quarter's lessons are called Three Cosmic Messages, and you can guess what that's about. Maybe three cosmic angels. (laughs) Yes. So the entire quarter's lessons are dealing with the book of Revelation and dealing with the coming of Jesus and dealing with the Adventist doctrine of the investigative judgment and the three angels' messages, all of which is twisted from the way it's used in context. But here's what the teacher's notes said. This is a sentence directly out of the teacher's notes about this passage of the Son of Man. It says... Jesus uses this title to reveal his total identity with our humanity. That's how I understood this passage as well. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man because, well, you know, he was human and he experienced everything we did. He was given no preferential treatment. He suffered. He was tempted. He kept the law. He didn't sin. He showed us how to do it. He identified with us but that's not the context of what it says in the Bible. It was fascinating to me to hear Gary Inrig describe how this phrase, the Son of Man, was taken by Jesus on his own lips, but not to identify with us as humans. His primary reason for saying it was as a messianic statement. He actually said this to Caiaphas. He said, you know, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's a reference directly to Daniel 7, and Caiaphas knew it. And Caiaphas knew that this message in Daniel 7 was a message of something God was going to do. It was a messianic prophecy. He understood that. And Jesus was making the statement, I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. But Adventism twisted all of that and said, this was just his way of telling us he was just a man. But he wasn't just a man.
1: (laughs) He was always God the Son. So as we're looking at this and talking about this, I'm noticing that in Daniel's vision, he says that he sees one like a son of man coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. It makes me picture the ascension. Right. That he came with the clouds and then he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. It makes me think a little further into the letter where he's receiving the scroll. So in Acts 1 verses 9 to 11, we read about his ascension. And an angel says to the apostles who are looking up into heaven, he says, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So I don't know that Daniel has seen the ascension. It could be the return. I'm not sure, but it makes me think of of this book ending of him in the clouds. I actually think you're right,
0: Nikki. The way Daniel's Vision describes it. It sounds like he's ascending to the Ancient of Days. But whichever way it goes, we know that he was taken up and ascended in the clouds, and he will come back in the clouds. And that is what Jesus also told Caiaphas. It was almost as if Jesus was prophesying what was about to happen. He hadn't yet been killed, and he was going to rise in the clouds. And then the angel was going to reveal to the apostles that he was going to come back in the clouds. And Jesus himself said that. And it was a reference, it was an illusion. To Daniel 7, and he was saying, I'm the one. I'm the one you've been waiting for. That's why the high priest tore his robes and said, What more do we need? We have heard the blasphemy. And he looked right at Jesus. And refused to believe. It's
1: interesting. Those conversations just mystified me before I understood what was happening because he never directly said things. As far as I could tell when I would read Matthew or John, it didn't seem like he was being direct, but yet everybody was upset with him. (laughs) Right.
0: In fact, you know, I asked Richard. I said, what did you think about all of this when when Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man and coming in the clouds? How did you understand that as an Adventist? And he said, well, the way I looked at that was like, well, here they are accusing him of blasphemy. Why doesn't he come right out and say, I'm the Messiah? Because how would you know from what he's saying? And you know, that's the fault of the way Adventism taught us by saying he identified as the Son of Man to identify with our humanity. That wasn't his point at all. His point was, I am this mysterious heavenly person that you see here in Daniel 2. This is me. I'm from heaven. I'm the Messiah. So yes, he was saying he was the Messiah and the Jews knew it, but we poor Adventists who'd been taught scripture inside out and upside down from a human perspective instead of from a sovereign God perspective,
1: we missed it. We missed it. And I remember thinking that you know, the rest of Christianity was missing it because just like the Jews miss their Messiah, all the Christians are missing the Sabbath. Yes. And if they just read their Bible and knew their Bible, they wouldn't miss the Sabbath like they had missed the Messiah. Isn't that horrifying? It was quite a jump. Well, and then it says that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Wow. That is so interesting. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. There again, Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man. And he's speaking to people who knew that, who should have known that he was referring to the coming of the Messiah. They would all see him. And then in verse 30, he says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. With power and great glory. That is another
0: amazing thing where Jesus is actually alluding to the Old Testament and he's connecting himself to the messianic prophecies. And again, we go to Zechariah, that other apocalyptic book that describes the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Jesus to set up his kingdom. And in Zechariah 12, this is what Zechariah writes. He hears his message from heaven saying, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn." In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadriman and the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Zechariah is seeing a day when Jesus, and the words here are, they will look on me whom they have pierced. This is God. This is God the Son who is coming back, whom they have pierced, and they will see him. Jerusalem and Israel will see him and finally recognize him as their Messiah, and they will mourn, and they will have a spirit of supplication poured out on them in that day. And here, Jesus, as you just read in Matthew also talks about that happening when he comes back, when the Son of Man returns. And here in Revelation, John is saying he's including both Jerusalem, the Jews, and all the nations, all the tribes of the earth. Everyone will see him, and there will be mourning. Now, Zechariah suggests that the Jews will see him and mourn in repentance and will recognize him. John just says they will mourn. And we conclude from that that, you know, probably some of those tribes of the earth were not mourning in repentance, but in fear as they see him coming. But the fact is, John is pulling from these Old Testament images, from the things Jesus himself has said, and he is saying, every eye will see him, and the people of the earth will mourn when they see him.
1: I loved what Gary pointed out from Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. This is God speaking. This is pre-cross. And God says, "They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son." You have some pretty incredible theology, yeah, in this the tenses, the pronouns, It's all there. And the idea that the Jews can't see that they rejected their Messiah, that the Christ who hung on the cross was the suffering servant is surprising to me because it is in the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, it is. And when it got played out right in front of them in Jerusalem, they didn't recognize him. Now, some, I believe, just refused to recognize him, like the high priest who tore his robes and said, we've heard the blasphemy. It's so incredibly sad, to be honest, that they saw this and they knew the Old Testament and they said, nope, not him.
1: So then this section ends with God saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. We have all of these letters from these apostles in the New Testament, but in Revelation, the author is God who sits on the throne, hearing him speak to us, reading him speak to us, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I mean, I know they're all authoritative, but this is exciting to me. (laughs) This is our Father. So the Alpha and the Omega, I think we all probably know, are the first and last letters of the alphabet. And this is, again, this is more of that picture of Yahweh. Yeah. You know, I am that I am. He is all things. He is self-existing. Is, was, is to come. And what's interesting is that
0: this appears to be God the Father speaking, although some scholars say it is Jesus. And to be sure, I'm not sure if it really matters because God is triune mm-hmm. and God is speaking. But at the end of the book in Revelation 22, this Alpha and Omega is applied by Jesus to himself. So we see that Jesus is the Almighty God. The Father is Almighty God. The Spirit is Almighty God. And the three uh, persons of the triune God are giving this letter to the churches. So, as we look back at these five verses that we've covered, we can make some conclusions. We see here that Jesus is inseparable from the Trinity. Grace and peace come from him, the Father, and the Spirit to the churches. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the I Am. He is eternal God. He is the faithful witness promised to Israel who has delivered God's final word, as we see in Hebrews 1.1. He's the firstborn from the dead, and because of His resurrection and destruction of the curse of death, we pass from death to life when we believe Him. Even more, we will rise with glorified bodies when He returns in the clouds for us. We learn here that He loves us. It's a continuous present tense that began in the past and continues unconditionally into the future. He has released us from our sins, a one time, once for all act that he completed in a moment of time, which reaches backwards and forwards into history and propitiates for the sins of everyone who believes his blood was sufficient. He is the sinless sin bearer. He has made those of us who are his to be a kingdom and priests forever. And we in the church carry his presence in the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We carry his presence and his gospel message in the world. And as his children, we intercede with him on behalf of unbelievers. We deliver the message of God's grace and the hope of eternal life. All glory and dominion are his forever and ever. He is coming in the clouds, just as Daniel saw all that time ago in Babylon. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all will mourn over him. These things are certain, and they will all be. Our God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and Jesus takes this name for himself as well. He is the I Am. He is eternal God with one eternal plan. And in this book, he's revealing how his kingdom will overcome the nations of the Gentiles and become established on earth. He will reign forever and ever with his saints, and he will always be glorified. And if you have not trusted this amazing Lord, God the Son, who is our Savior, bring your sin Bring your doubts to His cross and ask Him to be your Savior and believe that He has accomplished everything needed for your forgiveness and for the atonement of your sins. He has died, He was buried, and He rose again on the third day because He is sufficient, and He will give you His resurrection life the moment you believe. Trust Him today.
1: We hope you'll join us next week as we continue our walk through the book of Revelation with a look at John's vision of Jesus. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Former Adventist Podcast. You may email us at formerAvenist at gmail.com. Former Adventist Podcast is a ministry of Life Assurance Ministries. For more information, weekly articles, videos, and a donation link, go to our website at proclamationmagazine.com.